Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 73 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry, and this week kicks off our three-part Amazon series where we're going to do a deep dive on the whole platform ecosystem and what it takes to succeed as a merchant. And so I broke this series down into three parts, so one episode will come out every week. Uh, the first one is with Tyrone today. Uh, he has been selling niche toys on Amazon for about a year and a half, and he runs uh, well over seven figures over that. So we'll talk about uh, how he finds products, uh, what it takes to get started, and also some tips and lessons he's learned along the way and so part two next week will be with brad degras uh, so brad sells a uh, private label weight loss pills on amazon he's really kind of ninja the amazon seo in terms of like product descriptions getting the keywords right and so we'll talk about a little how on how the back end works uh, with him next week and finally the week after we'll talk to bill d'alessandro at rebelceo.com where we're going to talk about uh, fulfillment by amazon and using the warehouses uh, to ship your products and so bill has some unique experience where he's also used shipwire which is another of the free pl you probably heard me mention and so he's actually using both so it'll be interesting to see how he's balancing both of them in his business and kind of what are the advantages and disadvantages of using both amazon and shipwire all right so in this episode we're going to talk about how to get started on amazon the key things you need to know when starting out uh, things like finding a product understanding what's called the sales rank and the ecosystem and also to make sure you run a profitable business on amazon because it's very easy to sell things but actually selling it at a good price point and making sure you take home money at the end of the day is a challenging part so before we get into it, some news and updates on my side. Uh, my dummy orders finally got to the Shipwire Chicago warehouse. So in the next week or so, I'll be sending them to some friends, uh, one in LA, one in New York, uh, probably one to myself in Asia, and then one to another friend in London. And so the purpose of this is to get an idea on the time frame and service they provide, and also just to get an actual cost on how much shipping these goods will cost. Because the way I did it was I actually sent put a uh, old sample in the boxes so I can get the exact weight and dimensions of the box that I'll actually be sending the product in so it'll give me an exact idea to calculate my cost and to see where else I can uh, push things down whether it's through like designing packaging or things like that so uh, that's kind of what I'm up to now one other thing too is that as I'm scaling up the wallets uh, one thing about kind of packaging is that you realize when you're buying boxes for your product if you ever get into product manufacturing the MOQs for those are usually within a thousand and so when you have to buy a thousand boxes at once, but you're making products in like 200, 300 batches, it kind of makes things interesting where you have different quotas you gotta meet and as part of your product gets more complicated, it becomes more difficult to manage too. So kind of something I picked up on my side. And uh, with that being said, uh, let's just get into this week's episode. So welcome to the show, Ty. Who are you and what do you do? Thank you, Terry. Well, my name is Ty Roney. I sell toys on Amazon. Nice. And we just met in Bangkok a few weeks ago, and I understand you make a full-time living uh, selling on Amazon, So, which is very different than the usual guests I have. So today, we're kind of delving into the business model you're working with and kind of, uh, you know, if someone wants to get started, how should they treat Amazon? Because I think a lot of people say, you know, Amazon, you don't want to compete with them. But, you know, if you play jiu-jitsu, kind of like what you're doing, you're riding on the back of a gorilla you're doing really well too. So that's what we'll talk about today. And so, you know, just to kick it off, how did you get started selling on Amazon? So I used to work in a retail toy store 
uh, in brick and mortar. I managed the the store. As with many brick and mortar establishments, it was it was kind of a, a struggle to try and innovate and try and really increase sales. And there's a lot of overhead. And I told my boss that I wanted to try and sell online and and on Amazon specifically. But I also told him that I wanted a cut of the action. I kind of proposed this whole big uh, proposition, basically, where I said, "Hey, you know, I'm getting burned out of my job, but if I sell on Amazon, will you?" Uh, cut my salary, but then give me half of the profit from the online side of the business. And they basically said, no, we're uncomfortable with that. And sounds like you don't want to be here. So how about you leave? And so I did. And I just started selling on Amazon. <laughs> nice. So you already knew kind of the toy industry, how the main players were, how everything worked. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So at least the specialty toy industry, which is basically all the stuff you don't see in Walmart and in Target and whatnot in Toys R Us. So it's a it's more of a niche market, all the little specialty toy stores. Uh, that you see just popping up the little ones in, in the towns across the U.S. That's the kind of industry that I'm in. So are we talking like remote-controlled helicopters, like this type of niche? or like? Yeah, so I mean, th- we do have some of that. Surprisingly, you know, a lot of the mom-and-pop toy stores that are throughout the U.S., they, they carry a lot of more traditional toys. So we do have some remote-controlled helicopters, but surprisingly, not a whole lot of electronic toys. So, you know, anything from yeah, really nice stuffed animals to board games to, you know, the old wooden blocks you used to play with when you were two years old, that kind of stuff. So like Legos don't count as like specialty toys, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the funny thing. There is overlap and Lego, most toy stores will carry some Lego in them just because of the brand name, but you don't get the margins that you need. But for me on Amazon, I do not sell Legos. That's for sure. It would be I, don't, I wouldn't know how to do it. Gotcha. All right. And so how did you decide to stay in toys rather than go into a new niche to sell on Amazon? Mostly just because it, it really is something that I, I understood the industry. So for me, I think the biggest key to actually finding success in what I do is understanding where to find all my products. And so since I understood the industry really well, I'd been going to the, there's a big New York toy fair every year. And I've been going to that for three years. I knew a lot of different toy reps who represented you know, several, lots of lines, you know, 30, 40, 50 lines per rep. I knew where to start looking to try and find products and I knew the industry. So I just started looking up things that I knew sold well in the actual toy store and started from there. And surprisingly, now most of my product that I sell, we didn't even sell it uh, back at the old brick and mortar store, but that's how I got started anyway. Gotcha. And are these toy reps like part of the company or are they like individual agents who sell on behalf of like a manufacturer? Yeah, so they sell on behalf of a manufacturer, but it's interesting. They're all kind of, each rep belongs to a rep group. So there's these rep groups and they have tons of different reps and and the rep group will get a contract with, you know, a toy manufacturer. All of their individual reps will have, will represent that line in whatever region they're in. So, you know, I live in Utah. There are a lot of, there's probably seven or eight reps that I worked with representing in total, probably several hundred lines that, you know, I just started working through them to try and look for new products. Oh, I see. So if I'm just understanding this right, like say I'm selling, I make remote control helicopters, I'll sign a contract with a rep agency and then regionally they'll have like a guy in California, Utah, Florida, which then will individually look for retailers or people to sell my remote control helicopters. Correct. Yep. That's exactly how it works. And so uh, reps are great, especially for the brick and mortar stores, right? Because you have somebody, they're trying to push these manufacturers products um, in each store and showing them the product and showing them the, the catalogs. And then I also do work directly with the, with several manufacturers themselves, with several different companies when 
if I find the product online and I don't know who the rep is, it doesn't really matter. They work with you either way. So Yeah, because I'm sure the margins are better when you go direct to the manufacturer than having a rep. Actually, for, for the retail buyer, the margins are the exact same. It's the manufacturer that takes the hit. So in other words, they, they give the rep a 10% cut, but they give the pricing to all the retailers the exact same, whether they use a rep or not. Oh, and is the reason because the rep can scale it bigger than themselves having a sales team? Or Yeah, there's actually a lot of debate right now in the industry. Some There are some companies uh, that do have just in-house sales teams and that don't accept reps. The, the ones that are really, really good about it, I think they're doing extremely well. Uh, but then for you know a lot of these different manufacturers, you know, it's a, it's a guy that made up he invented one toy out of his garage and and he uses reps because they go out and they, they, they push his product for him, you know? I see, yeah, because they have the footprint too. So. Exactly, exactly. So they, they can be really beneficial. Gotcha. All right, and so uh, when you started out, did you go directly to reps or the manufacturers or what was the mix like? You know, I did a whole lot. The, one, of the, one of the main reasons I, I switched over to selling specifically on Amazon was that one of my toy reps actually, he, he's got his hands in all sorts of different pies and he's uh, actually selling on Amazon as well. And he told me about it and he sells on Amazon, but he's also a rep. It benefits him to have other people selling on Amazon because it, it adds a whole new account for him. So I started off with him and he kind of showed me a little bit about how Amazon worked. And then I just kind of started buying some products through him. I did a lot of research online. I, I started looking at all the toy brands I'd already worked with in the past. And it really is just kind of everything. I tried everything. Nice. So he's basically cutting his own supply chain, Oh, yeah. being his own rep too, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a genius. He, he's a genius. I think it's, it's, isn't it, you can't have your cake and eat it too, but he's definitely that. <laughs> he's doing that for sure. Yeah, all right. And so when you decided to start out, you know, how much capital did you invest in to buy inventory? Or did you do like a dropship model or how did that work? Yeah, so you have to invest in the inventory if you're using FBA, which I do exclusively. I actually partnered up with a, a teammate of mine in our MBA program. We each had 5,000 bucks to put into it. And so we decided, well, that's, that's what we're going to use to buy all of our inventory to start with. Gotcha. And just to make a clarification, uh, FBA and listing on Amazon are separate things, right? Yes, yes. So listing on Amazon, you can list any product on Amazon and just you know ship it from your garage if you'd like. Uh, and then FBA is fulfillment by Amazon where you ship it to Amazon's warehouses and they fulfill it for you. Either way, you end up on the same listing. FBA, you have Amazon ship it for you. Yeah, and then you can, I believe you can uh, use Prime too, right? When you're using their warehouses. Exactly. So it's Prime eligible when you're using FBA, which is, I think that's a big boost in sales. Behind the scenes, do you still pay shipping fees for that? Or how does that work out with Prime? Yeah, I don't pay any shipping fees, which is beautiful. So... They kind of take care of all of that, basically. But I, you know, obviously you have to pay to ship it to Amazon's warehouses. You use Amazon's their discounted rates to ship it UPS, which is definitely a lot cheaper than I could ship it UPS to them. But then they take care of it everything after that. So you only pay for shipping from your product to the FBA warehouse, and also maybe like a storage fee or a fulfillment fee and like a listing fee, and really that's it. Right? Yeah, yeah, and then. Don't forget that a lot of manufacturers that I work with, most of them don't ship directly to Amazon for me. So I have to ship it to my warehouse first and then to their warehouse. Oh, I see. They don't, you can't directly send it to Amazon. Okay, I got you. Because I understand FBA, you need to package your products a certain way. Can you go into a little bit about that? You'll have to research your category that you're in, but different category and different items, they have different regulations. So for instance, since I sell a lot of stuffed animals, if the stuffed animals 
are not in a bag and the bag isn't labeled with a suffocation warning on it, I'll get in trouble with Amazon. Basically, they'll charge me all sorts of fees and and they'll ding me for not being a good account with them, basically. So the worst case scenario for me, I have to bag a product and I have to put a suffocation label on it. And then I have to put a label on it. And then I have to put it in a box, put a packing slip in the box and put a shipping label on the box. And everything, all of those labels that I just talked about, you you create within Amazon's little ecosystem. So basically they just want to have your product in a warehouse ready to go with like a barcode scan. They don't want to do any like assembly or anything like that. That's why they ding you. Right, right. They'll ding you for it. They actually just started, they just updated their services to, before they would kind of just get mad at you and say, oh, you should have put this in a bag and we're going to put you online, put you on a phone call with one of our representatives and we're not going to let you ship anything else until you talk with them. And now they basically just say, we'll charge you an unreasonable amount to bag it for you. <laughs> and so you just, you just do it and make sure that you do it the right way. I can't imagine how many people they're dealing with that are not following the guidelines. It must be a pain in the ass. Yeah, it really must be pretty horrible for them. So I, this is a genius idea for them to kind of learn how to take it in-house themselves and, and just charge us crazy fees in case we don't do it right. But it really, it's pretty simple because the way they got, this, got it set up in their system, you just... You follow the rules and you can print off labels right there and you can print off the packing slip and and really most of the stuff makes sense because if you don't print off their packing slip and tell them what you're shipping into them, how are they going to know, you know? And so when you're shipping the products to them, is there like a designated warehouse or is it based on ge- geography or? You know, I think it's based on where they think they need it. Uh, unfortunately, it's not necessarily based on geography. We love it when they ship for instance, since I'm in Utah, we love when they pick the Arizona warehouse because shipping is very cheap for us to send to the Arizona warehouse. But unfortunately, most of their warehouses are back east. So it may one shipment may go to Virginia, the other one to Illinois, the other one to Tennessee. They go all over. So they actually tell you which one to send it to based on their back end probably. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah, I read somewhere that I think it was on some webinar, they said most of the U.S. population still does live in the East Coast, kind of Midwest area. So yeah, yeah. And I actually, it's one thing I'm considering is I, I know of other people selling on Amazon that have actually moved their warehouses to Illinois or to places back East because it's a better location. So Yeah, because if you're moving a lot of product, like I remember in the thread, you're moving somewhere around seven figures of top line sales. I mean, it's a lot of stuff you're shipping in and out and it adds up probably over a year too. So. You know, I haven't been in this too long and I'm trying to figure out how, I'm, how to scale it right. And so we just ended up getting, before we actually had a third party warehouse that was fulfilling our stuff to Amazon's warehouses, but then they fired us because we were too complicated for them. So we got our own warehouse as of October 1, right before I left to come out to Thailand and got it all set up. And now we're trying to see how that goes. And if we can figure out how to do it where we are, then maybe we'll be able to move it back east. With all the packaging Amazon needs, like you can't really ask your supplier to send it directly to them either. Exactly, yeah, that's the hard thing. So some, some of our vendors do it for us and we love them. Uh, but most, you know, understandably realize this is a pain because it requires a lot of back and forth communication with us and we have to send them, email them the labels and email them all. They have to email us the dimensions of the boxes and the weights. It ends up being too, a lot of work for them. Yeah. So with this additional layer, it leads me to my next question. Obviously, it adds a lot of kind of more cost to it. So like margin wise, how did you figure that out before you got started? Like, did you decide, hey, I need a certain X amount of profit margin to sell this product to Amazon? Or what was the methodology behind that? Basically, I kind of took the arbitrary number of saying, look, 
at the end of the day, I have to be making uh, somewhere between 10% and 20% uh, margin on my products, at least. This is after like all the fee fulfillment fees and all that, right? Yeah, after all the fulfillment fees. So what we basically did is we kind of came up with our own criteria and we said, okay, after all the fulfillment fees and everything, we want our margin to be right around 20%. A lot of times that didn't account for the shipping cost that it would take us to send it into Amazon or to take the vendor to ship it to us. So that way with 20%, that gives us 10% of a buffer in case, you know, all those shipping costs add up. Uh, but it is, that's, that's kind of a really important part. You know, the devil's in the details there and that's the most important detail is understanding what your costs will be exactly. Because if you don't, you, you'll, you can easily, easily, easily lose money selling selling items on Amazon. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of random stuff just sells on Amazon and you can get caught into this whole trap of selling stuff. But in the end, you're not making much money or even losing money too. Absolutely. I, I, I always tell people it's really easy to sell on Amazon. Anyone can sell a lot of stuff on Amazon, but you can, you can sell it and basically be paying people to sell it because if you don't do it right, you will definitely, definitely lose money. So there's actually a, a calculator that Amazon provides that's called the FBA revenue calculator. And you can plug in what the sales price of the item is and it will tell you all the different fees that they're going to charge you. And you can estimate, okay, that's what my fees will be. There's what my margin will be before shipping. And then you just have to try and estimate what your own shipping costs will be after that. Nice. So you can just basically plug different ideas in and then come up with something that fits your criteria too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how many ideas did you start out with before coming up with like X amount of products to sell on Amazon? Well, that's kind of the whole ongoing part of our business, right? So we just started, you know, I'm trying to think we, there were probably three or four companies that we had settled on. The reason we had settled on, on different companies and different items was we looked on Amazon itself and we checked them one by one at first to see, okay, does this product, does it sell at the right price on Amazon? Is the sales rank good enough? What's the competition look like? And we just sent in really small amounts to experiment and to see how well it moved based on kind of the criteria that we had set. I see. And so how many SKUs did you guys start off with? Like a ballpark figure? We started off with zero, right? And then we added on Probably initially we added on 10, 20 really quickly and then kept going up from there. And right now we're at about 550 products. I see. So your first, you're saying you put 5K in, your partner put 5K in. So you guys bought like 10, 20 products kind of as a baseline. Yeah. Yep. We bought 10 or 20 different products. We bought, you know, the minimum orders of a lot of stuff that we could. Uh, so maybe that was 12 per unit or something. Or, you know, sometimes it's slightly higher based on the minimum dollar amount you have to order from a vendor and so we just did that and then we saw how it worked and then invested more and put it all back in yeah one of the scary things too with buying inventory is that you never know if it's going to sell until you actually put it on there or unless you do like a kickstarter right so like when you guys started off with your 10 20 products like how did you guys figure out which ones to reorder and the ones if they didn't work like what did you guys do with that so luckily you know in the beginning what we did is we we kept it really strict so we we only sold products on Amazon that we knew had a really good sales rank. By doing that, we knew that it would move, just depending on if we had to lower the price, if it would, you know, if that was the case. But we really did luck out in the very beginning. We we kept the guidelines really, really strict, so that we only chose products that would sell well on Amazon, and that we could actually move, even if we were going to take zero margin at the end of the day. We wanted to make sure 
that at least we could get rid of the product and get our cash back. When I first started, I had these like little affiliate sites, Amazon sites, and like people would buy like ham and like toilet paper and like all this really weird stuff. You're like, wow, people actually do buy a lot of stuff here. Yeah, you'd be surprised what people buy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess it's big enough that everything eventually would sell. I wouldn't go that far because as we've gotten more inventory, now we're starting to experience that problem, right? With, with only 5, 10, 20 products, you have a really good pulse on everything. Uh, but once you have 500, 600, 1,000, uh, things start to change. The market changes every day, obviously. So some of your products slow way, way down. So, you know, a year and a half later, now we're starting to see, okay, we have some duds and we need to figure out how to get rid of them. Uh, but luckily not very many. And so we'll just be able to take that as a small loss and say, okay, you know what, these are, these need to either be completely offloaded on Amazon, or if they're not even moving, we'll take them back and figure out a way to liquidate them otherwise. All right, so let's move into a little bit about how Amazon uh, selling actually works. So you mentioned a word called sales rank earlier. You know, what, what is this word? Yeah, so they have like, I think it's called the best sellers, uh, Amazon best sellers rank in every different category on Amazon. So whether it's clothing or toys and games, you know, or baby, whatever. Each, the sales rank basically tells you how well the product moves compared to all the other products in a category. So if it has a sales rank of number one, it's the best selling product in the category. If it has a sales rank of a million, there are 999,999 products that sell faster. And you don't want to sell that item, by the way. <laughs> I see. So is it kind of like more aggregate, like the rich get richer? If you're like on a rank 10, you just keep staying up there because people obviously see your momentum. So it kind of stays there or? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, and this is, this is all talking about the actual listing, right? So I think it does the top 100 products in any category. I think they do get a lot of buzz and they stay up there for a longer period of time uh, just because they break into the top 100. And that's, that's the only thing you can actually view, right? You can only view the top 100 by browsing. So I think that does help a lot with, uh, with the customers and whatnot. Bestseller ranking basically when you're on their site searching for it or is it behind like the FBA kind of uh, kind of their back end? It's, it's right there on the listing. Oh, okay, so when you sort by A to Z, there's a bestseller's ranking. That's what we're talking about. Right? Yeah, when you basically when you get onto the listing, if you're going to buy an item right there on the product page, you just scroll down and it'll tell you the Amazon bestseller's rank right there. That's where actually you have to get it. There's no other place. <laughs> Actually, so you're using that data to say how fast this product moves, and then if the margins work out, that's what you'll decide to get sourcing to buy inventory. Exactly. And what was your criteria on the bestsellers ranking? Like, say there's like you know a hundred, hundred thousand. Like, what would be a good one, like a good margin, or I guess range to look for bestsellers ranking to find products? Yeah. So I mean, starting out, we tried to find products with a, a sales rank of twenty five thousand or better, and then as we understood what that meant for us. We slowly moved it up to where now, you know, we'll accept, we'll, we'll sell products up to 75,000 rank. If we're getting really crazy, maybe we'll say, okay, this product has a sales rank of 100,000, which means it's not that great of a mover, but we can at least move some if there's not a lot of competition. So how does the 75,000 ranking work? Like there's 75,000 products in the same category or? Yeah, yeah. There's actually millions of products in the toy category. So we don't sell anything above 100,000 just because it won't move fast enough for what we want. Whatever the rank is, it means that there are that many products ahead of it that sell better. So basically, you can't ever really know 
exactly what that means because everything's changing and each category is sized differently, of course. So, you know, the best-selling item in clothing, it may move a lot faster than the best-selling item in toys. I don't know. But whatever category is bigger is the one that you would be willing, right, to have a, a, a worse sales rank in, right, if, if there's a lot more demand. Yeah, because like a 2,000 ranking in a 2,000 category, product category versus a 2,000, like 100,000 means different. Exactly. It's very, very different. So there's no silver bullet there. You have to try and understand what it means in your category and then also understand that it can be quite volatile. You know, the sales ranks are updated. I think they're updated several times a day. Depending on how well the product moves, maybe it'll, it'll be at 70,000 and then it'll drop down to 100,000 really fast. You don't really know. But it's interesting that it allows you to see how big a competition is based off the rankings, right? Because you can just look for the worst product and then you know how many people are ahead of it and how many kind of other you know, competitor products are in the market, right? Yeah, that's, that, that really is the beauty of Amazon, right? So Amazon obviously gives you the traffic and they tell you how well the product moves. So you kind of, once you experiment and try and sell things in your niche, you start to understand what the demand is. So they basically tell you a little bit about demand by the sales rank. And then once you look at that and compare it with how many competitors there are and what their pricing is, you can get a decent idea for what you need to order. Yeah, and then if the margins plug into the calculator and what you need yourself as a business, that's kind of just really plug and play almost, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So the, the challenge really, it becomes knowing how to manage all of your products. I'm kind of reaching that point where I need to hire somebody to do all of my buying for me. And also I need to hire somebody to help me find more products. Uh, because those two things, if you can get those right, then you can really start to scale. Yeah. So you guys started with like 10 to 20 SKUs. How many are you guys at right now? Uh, we are at about 550. I see. Yeah. Managing all those orders must be a, <laughs> must be a headache. <laughs> it's a lot harder actually than because I used to manage 5,000 SKUs in the brick and mortar store, but they move kind of slower and more consistently, right? Whereas Amazon, sometimes a product will get hot and it will... You know, maybe the price is too high for a little, it's too low, I mean, for a little bit, and I won't sell any units. And then the price will come up, and then I'll sell all 48 in a day or in a week or something, right? So you have to keep a really good pulse on your inventory and on how it's moving so you can get the reorders in quick. Yeah, and you've been doing this for a year, or how long have you been doing it? A year and a half that I've been doing Amazon, yep. I see. So what does the holiday season look like? Because we're recording this kind of late October you know, what did last year's Christmas look like? Did everything just sell out or like? <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of did. And that was almost by design, right? Because we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so we were a little bit more conservative. We borrowed $50,000 to help fund last year's Christmas. And we sold out of almost everything. And we had almost no inventory in January. And in the toy industry, about 50% of your sales occur in the fourth quarter. So this year... We went in with a little bit more of an aggressive feel, and yeah, we're kind of gearing up right now. We shipped all of our inventory in over the last few weeks, and now we're kind of sitting back and, and trying to analyze and see, okay, did we send in enough? Do we need to send in more? What do we need to do? It's, it's really exciting, and it's also very scary because basically you bet half your business every Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like calm before the storm, like a hurricane's coming and it's quiet now and you know, it's coming like a month or two and then... Yeah, and, and the nice thing, I mean, last year we, we realized, okay, Christmas is, is still very, very good online when, you know, we saw that, I think it was Cyber Monday, we had a 
$20,000 in sales day, which earlier that year we had had a, we had had months that we didn't do $20,000. And so we thought, okay, there's a lot of potential during Christmas time. If you have enough product and you have the right product in there. Yeah. So if you're saying, you know, in the toy industry, 50% of your sales come from Christmas, like would it make sense to even go over supply and inventory just, you know, to meet this demand because you only get it once a year? Yeah. Yeah. It, it would make sense. And it's, it's also good on Amazon to try and ship in enough to last you through January, actually, just because they still do decently in sales in January because everyone gets gift cards and whatnot. The real key, though, is that you know, it, it's just scary because we've done 500,000 in sales so far this year. And that means we want to do another 500,000 plus during Christmas. So that's a lot of capital to throw up in inventory. So it's as much as we're willing to risk. <laughs> yeah. It's really like double downing and blackjack. Right? Oh yeah. It's, it's, it does feel a lot like gambling. I've, you know, even with, even when I worked in the brick and mortar shop, I, I, you know, this is my fourth or fifth year in the business now. So it's like every year you feel like you're just gambling. Yeah, because it makes sense that you want to last your January because the last thing you want to do is like you wait a week while your product is getting to the warehouse, to the FBA warehouse, and then like it's lost sales, you're missing out on it. Oh, time. for sure. We, we, we experienced that problem last year. We, we sent some stuff in in late November and it, we, it, never, it never showed up because I imagine their warehouses just get so crazy. So we spent several months working with Amazon to get them to find our inventory and give us a credit. But even still, you're like, okay, I got a credit, but all those lost sales during the time we needed it, you know, it just hurt. Yeah. And now that you've been with Amazon for a year and a half, do they assign a sales rep to you to work with your accounts like on FBA and listings? Or is it kind of like a customer service portal where you go through kind of like a mundane uh, routine? Customer, customer service portal mundane. I do know of some people that have been in the business a lot longer than me that do have access to some account reps. And so every once in a while, I'll, I'll try and uh, cash in one of my favors with them if I really need to get a hold of somebody and, and they'll put me in touch with someone. But it can be somewhat frustrating that, that uh, we don't have our own specific account representative. But at the same time, they do try and get back to you quickly. Just it's not, it's not the same, that's for sure. Yeah, because it's normal for most B2B guys to have like this rep system, right? Where they have like a certain amount of clients they cover. But exactly. I guess Amazon's so big that they can't do this. Yeah, I think, I, I have a feeling that they, uh, that, they have, they, that they have account reps for the guys doing 50 million in sales, but uh, just not for the littler guys like me. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't make sense when you're doing 50 million in sales to leave that to like a portal where the experience could be. Oh yeah, not at all, not at all. So hopefully, you know, I can I can get a little bit closer to that number, and they'll think they'll treat me a little bit more special. Awesome. All right, so let's move into a little about sales and marketing. You know, one thing most e-commerce stores work with is Google, right? Usually, you know that you know if you're ranking in the top ten, you get a certain amount of traffic, and then they go to your store, right? But how does that work on Amazon? Like, how do they even find you? Like, if I type remote control helicopters, how do they know I'm going to find my product versus a competitor's product? Yeah. So. I don't even worry about that, to be honest. It's everyone, you know, I've taken, I've taken classes on SEO and I've done all this stuff and for whatever reason, Google's world just wasn't as appealing to me as Amazon's. So I just kind of thought, okay, look, Amazon's telling me how well a product moves based on the sales rank. And I'm selling these branded products online as a retailer. So if, if the sales rank is good enough, that means people are buying it. 
and they're finding that product that they're looking for and I'm there to supply it to them. So how does things get pushed up or down the sales rank? Uh, it's consumer demand. It's depending on how well the item sells is how the sales rank moves. And uh, there are probably a lot of ways. Uh, and I'm sure when you chat with uh, Brad with Private Label, you'll learn some of his ways to try and get things searched in uh, better for the search terms or whatever. But the for me, I just find products that I know are selling well and I understand my industry so I can kind of understand, look, this type of product does sell well normally. And on Amazon, it's no exception. I see. So it's, it's sort of like oversimplified, like SEO is like overcomplicating everything. For me, it totally is. I don't even, I don't even think about SEO. Well, when they give you the sales rank metric, is that across a period of time or is it just within like a day? Like, can you find the average of like the sales rank for one product over the past three months to get a better idea? Or? Well, you know, I'm not sure about the, the sales rank, uh, understanding it over time. You do, it is just kind of instantaneous. So you don't know exactly how long they're basing it off of. But what I usually do is I look at it, I look at the same product several times the period of a week or two and just to get a feel for what's happening with it and then I'll get the idea of this is how well it's been moving over time if any of the products in the top 100 category it tells you how long it's been there which will help but even still most of my products are not in the top 100 so you just kind of have to get a feel for what what it means and that's where I think understanding your industry really comes into play because if you understand how well a certain brand of stuffed animal is doing uh, overall, you'll be more comfortable being more aggressive with your orders because you're more confident that they're going to continue to sell well on Amazon. I see, rather than just kind of blind guessing off a sales ring. But, but it's interesting you mentioned the time checking because that's how you get an average of like, say if it's like 10,000 today versus 500,000 tomorrow, like you don't want to go in today and then all, all of a sudden have it drop like, you know, five, 10 times down the ranking and then get stuck with inventory too. Yeah, and, and I think there is a certain point where you can rest somewhat assured because if you have a, a sales rank of 5,000, at least in toys and games category, you're selling well enough that it's not, it's impossible for it to drop straight to 500,000 just because it doesn't, maybe it doesn't sell for a day or something, right? So I think there is, I don't know exactly how long-term it is, they don't tell you. You gotta kind of figure out what, where, you know, what the sales rank means in that situation, because when you hit a hundred thousand, then it can kind of change pretty far up to 200,000, uh, in a day or two, which means that they're not moving that many at a hundred thousand, right? <laughs> if they can change and drop that far on the rank. So is it safe to say that if you find something with a decent sales rank, uh, over time, it'll eventually you'll sell all their inventory or. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you today picked out a product, with a sales rank of 100 in the toys and games category, and you priced it and matched whoever was selling it at the lowest price, you would sell that product really fast. You could guarantee it's gone. Gotcha, and so the pricing comes from either A, knowing your industry well, getting the right pricing from the manufacturer or your sales rep, and then really capitalizing that with the whole ecosystem on Amazon too. Yeah, so you you have to be able to compete with whoever's selling on, on that listing, right? So. You just look and hopefully you can get some sort of deal by ordering enough units or you get you know free freight on your order uh, and then you kind of have an idea for what that will mean on your on your price because the price for me is determined completely by the market. So before we get into that, this means that if you use FBA, the margin you get from getting the prime shipping, you can use that 
to undercut your price to sell faster. Yeah, so you mean basically because it's prime shipping, you can compete more than someone else who's trying to ship it themselves, right? And say charge $5 of shipping. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you can basically set your price at, at whatever you want that's profitable to you. Uh, but you'll find that for a lot of people have have really caught on to the FBA game. And it really, for me anyway, it, it makes complete sense. And so there's, and for almost all of my listings, there's probably someone else selling FBA as well. So we're both competing. <laughs> all right, so how does this work out then if everyone's competing on price? Like you mentioned uh, repricing software. Like how does this work on that side? Yeah, so that's kind of the, the tough part about the business is that it's turning more and more into a commodity, right? So since it's based all on price, you all the big players have a, a repricing software, I guess you could call it. So basically we set kind of the rules for the software and it does whatever, it kind of runs on its own after that. So you can set it to have a lowest, you know, the lowest price it'll go to and then the highest price that you want it to go to. And then you can say, well, I want it to match the lowest competitor down to my lowest price, or I want it to be slightly lower or slightly higher than the lowest competitor. You kind of use that software, it runs and you know, the prices change all the time. So you have to have the software if you are moving a decent amount of units. Uh, so if I'm selling remote control helicopters, I can say, you know, I'm selling for 100. I don't want to accept anything under $50, but I can, in, anything in between, the software can just change it based on whatever I accept, right? Automatically, yep. It's the only way to really do well once you have a bunch of units because, I mean, this thing's updating every 15 minutes. So when we first started, we were updating our prices every, you know, every day. And we thought that was great, but you're missing out on a lot, not only to be more competitive necessarily, but also, you know, when prices rise, you want to make sure that you are selling them for what the market wants to buy them at. So if, if your lowest competitor, if they run out of stock and then you're still selling it for the same price, but then the next guy is selling it for $5 more expensive. I'd rather actually just bump my price up, sell it for $5 more expensive, and then still keep making money that way. Does that happen often where the system software raises prices or is it usually like everyone's just pushing it to the bottom line and making it cheap as possible? <laughs> yeah, so probably 99% are too low of a price for me to get involved in. I'm looking for the 1% of products that I can still do well with. Most people using repricing software are smart enough to realize that if, you, if, if, if everyone says that they want to be a penny less than their competitor, your price will eventually end up at zero, right? Most of us uh, either match or actually do slightly higher than the lowest competitor. And then what happens is it really is kind of a game of understanding how to keep inventory in stock because that's when the prices really move around. When the lowest guy runs out of stock and then the price bumps up to the next guy that was selling it, right? And then he's the lowest guy. And then, it, and then you know, their software will bump it up to the next highest. So that's how it kind of can change quite a bit, especially during Christmas when sales go crazy. It's like there's like five people walking a plank and you're trying to see who falls off first and then kind of like trying to like stay afloat, right? right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because you can, you can decide how aggressive you want to be. Because for me, I'm pretty conservative. I say, look, if I can't sell it at the price that it's moving for right now, I'm a little nervous. But a lot of people don't worry too much about the price. And they just say, look, I'm going to order 24 of this unit. I'm going to send it in. And when the next guy runs out or decides that he's selling it for too cheap and realizes that, 
then I'll move my units. So you kind of, people are all kind of trying to decide what their price, what makes sense for them. So oh, it's a very interesting model and in how everything works like this. Too. Yeah. I mean, some people, some people, you know, probably accept, well, I know for a fact they have to accept a tiny margin, you know, 5%, 1% at the end of the day, because I know what price they're selling the product at. So either they're getting some crazy backdoor deal that I'm not, or they're willing to accept that they're getting next to nothing, you know, for selling that item, or maybe they're trying to get rid of it. Uh, so that's something you always got to keep in mind. Yeah. So I guess do some suppliers do like a minimum advertised price to keep it from going to like as low as possible? Or? Yeah, a lot of suppliers are, are doing that and more and more every day are trying to institute these policies. And personally, I love them because that means I will generally get the margin that I want, right? Every time and I don't have to worry about a bidding war. And everyone else will get the same thing, but at least it keeps it from squeezing you to like 5%, 4%, 3% range, right? Exactly. So that's the, that's the catch, right? With everyone selling it for the same price, we all kind of share the listing equally. So you all kind of end up moving it at about the same rate. Uh, but then you, you have a safe margin and that's, that's worth its weight in gold. So. And it seems Amazon is big enough that everyone can kind of stay happy that way, even though everyone's making the same margin. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's really the, the nice thing about it is the ocean is very, very big. All right, so one thing I think you mentioned in your thread in the Amazon AMA was that uh, I think bundling, some people do bundling. So say if I'm selling remote control helicopters, I could add like a slipper in there and it would be a separate listing, right? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that's a strategy for sure. And I'm experimenting with some bundles right now. There are some bundles that other people have created that I've kind of jumped on and said, oh, I can bundle that and I can sell it too. Uh, and the nice thing about that is that Amazon.com, I actually try and avoid competing with Amazon.com at all costs. So if Amazon.com is actually selling a product, I won't. I won't try and compete with them because they tend to own the listing. But if you bundle an item, uh, let's say, yeah, you have a remote control helicopter and then you say, here's some extra batteries, then you can create an entirely new listing and Amazon doesn't jump on that because it's not just a normal product. So even if they're selling it, it still counts as separate? Yeah, uh, even if they're, if they're selling just the helicopter and you say, I'm selling the helicopter plus the batteries, you have a whole new listing that they will not jump on. They're not going to bundle those two together. At least they haven't so far. Thank goodness. And how does the sales rank play? Does it go into the helicopter sales rank or it has its own? Or? It's its own listing, its own sales rank and everything. So yeah, it's its own product and viewed as such. So what a lot of people do is they'll try and pick a really popular product and add something to it and see if people bite, you know? And if they do, then the sales rank will do pretty well because it has you know, one of the products in the bundle is already moving really fast on Amazon. I see. So you're just piggybacking something random that you could boost yourself in a new category and then bypass the old sales rank a little bit, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe you have, it's, it's really helpful if you do, this kind of thing works really well for anything that needs refills or batteries, you know, or something that you think would, whatever kind of uh, accessory you think would really benefit the the consumer that's that's when those tend to work out really well gotcha gotcha all right so let's move on into another topic we talked about earlier uh, i mentioned you know what's a good conversion rate for amazon but you said you don't really care so yeah. know, why is that yeah i honestly don't really care i took a look at the conversion rates for each, each one of my listings and 
they, dude, they are all over the map. I was seeing things from like half a percent to 40%, and it just doesn't make any sense. And I think it's just because things are so volatile in Amazon's ecosystem. Uh, since the listing is the same, right? So whether there's 10 people or 20 people selling on the listing, it looks the same. And so what I care about is, is the sales rank good? And what's my buy box percentage? Meaning out of, out of everyone that's selling this item, how often am I the one that is actually the one that people buy from? I see. That would be your actual conversion rate we're looking at, right? Not the actual product, how many people are buying it. Because if everyone can sell it, well, it doesn't really matter then, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And the, the buy box percentage means basically, yeah, for everyone that's, for everyone, every time someone's looking at the item, how often do you own the buy box? How often are they are they actually purchasing from you? It's interesting because, again, that number, there's no set standard. Obviously, you'd love to have 100% of the buy box 100% of the time. That means you have your very own listing that no one else can sell on. But for me, having a a 5% buy box, if I own the buy box 5%, but the sales rank is really good, that still means I'm moving a lot of units. Whereas if I have the buy box 50% and the sales rank is horrible, I might not be moving even close to the number of units. So you want to be the guy that A, sells a fast-moving product, but also B, the guy they're actually buying from, not just some like random competitor. Right? Exactly, exactly. So that, those are, that's what you really want to focus on is, are those things. And, and really, the buy box ends up, a lot of it when you're competing, it is based on price. There's no doubt about it. Price is huge. But then also you know, making sure that you have uh, good rankings as a seller is really important and abiding by all of Amazon's guidelines. I think they, they take into account basically, basically how good you are to work with as, a, as an account. Uh, they'll kind of put that into their little algorithm. And, and so it's not completely based on price, but it has a lot to do with it. I see. So if you're, if you're looking at the buy box rate, what's like a good range versus a bad one? Like is 5% good or like 10%? Or? You know, that's the hard thing, right? So one of my, one of my fastest moving products, I, I think right now, because there's so much competition, uh, you know, I have maybe only a 6% that I have the buy box. It's only 6%, 6% of the time I only have the buy box. But hey, if I'm still moving hundreds of units a week, I'm okay with that. Whereas, you know, other, I do have lots of other products where I own the buy box 40, 50, 60% of the time, but I'm only moving maybe 6 or 12 units a week or a month. And it's not necessarily on what's a good buy box percentage, it's kind of how can you improve it in each place that you are. So it should be like a mix of the sales rank and how much you're moving plus the actual bio box to get like a good number on how you're doing for a certain product, not necessarily just how much you're converting off the buy box. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, you know, you could, at the end of the day, you could just say, well, am I moving a lot of units and what's the rank and what's, you know, what's my competition doing and my buy box doing so I can kind of see how many more I need to reorder. That, that kind of helps you right there. I see. Yeah, because you could accept a low rate, but if you're moving hundreds of thousands of products, hey, why not, right? <laughs> right. At the end of the day, it's about throughput. And so throughput and making sure your margins are there, you always want to move your inventory faster. <laughs> yeah. And so one thing I forgot to ask about sales rank is that if I'm selling a remote control helicopter and someone else is selling the same thing, does that count towards the same sales rank or are they listed as separate items within the ecosystem? It's the same exact listing. And so... Yeah, it's all based on the number of sales that that item uh, has. So whether they buy it from me or from you, 
uh, that will all be filtered into the same sales rank on the same listing for that item. So that's why they always ask for these like UPC codes and their own like tagging with all the products. Yeah, it, right? exactly, exactly. So a lot of a lot of times you can just you don't have to label it because yeah, the item's official UPC code is in harmony with what Amazon has in their system. But if it's not in harmony, then they say, okay, now we've got our own code that you've got to print off so that we know that that's the exact product that we're putting on the listing. So it sounds like it's more difficult for branded items to sell because if you're already having something that's moving in the sales rank, like if you're just coming out with your own product, you'd probably start at the bottom, right? Yeah, so you're saying, yeah, if you were going to create your own item and throw it on there, it, unless people have heard about it, Amazon is a place people go to to buy things. That's what's so wonderful about the site. So a lot of times they're looking for these items specifically. You know, I think when you learn more about private label, you can you can learn how to work with keywords and, and search and whatnot. But I think bigger than anything, it's just... If you were to make your own product, you need to try and figure out ways to get demand out and get the word out about it. And then the sales will come from Amazon in time. Yeah, like it almost seems like if you're making your own product, you can get your customers to buy it on Amazon and then snowball that sales rank. It seems like a kind of like a, you know, on paper it sounds good, but I asked that Brad about that when he's doing private labeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there could, there could be a good way to do that, right? And he's selling private label stuff, but at the end of the day, there's still a demand for whatever he's selling, right? So he just has his own brand and then he's figured out a way to get people to search for it and then hit, basically find it in the sea of all the other supplements or whatever it is that he's moving, you know? Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear more about too. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm going to listen in. Yeah. And so when customers, uh, you know, the customer service side, when they return or refund stuff, how does that work out with you and FBA? Yeah, so refunds and returns are, are really nice. Amazon handles everything. So they just basically, at the end of the day, they'll, they'll kind of ding us some fees and say, okay, you know, this item, they returned it because there was a problem with it and you need to get rid of it. But most of the time, what they'll do is they'll, they'll accept the refund for you, they'll put it back into your inventory, and no harm, no foul. You just have to eat some of the, the fees that were associated with that. And... Right now, I think my refund rate is around one to two percent. So, it's not it's not too horrible that it doesn't it doesn't hurt too much. And most of the time, it doesn't even impact me. Are those fees a lot? They're like you know two five dollars, or is it dependent on your product price? The the one interesting thing on Amazon is how they break out all of their payments and all of their transactions. They're all very kind of complicated. Most of the time, the fees are really small, though. I mean, maybe it'll be a buck for some kind of transactional fee. The real problem is what happens when they somebody returns the product and they've damaged it and so they send it back to their warehouses and then they put it in what's called your unfulfillable inventory meaning hey guess what we have this product in our warehouses but you can't actually sell it so you need to remove it <laughs> meaning we have to request it back send it send it to you or just throw it away right yeah we can do one of two things we always have it sent to us because half the time the product isn't really damaged. So we send it right back into Amazon's warehouses. The hard thing is at the end of the day, that's a lot of fees of shipping. And so we are hoping to basically break even at best once we've done that whole process. So Amazon decides whether products reshippable. Yeah, yeah, they do, they do. And most of the time they're wrong. Most of the time it can be reshipped, <laughs> but they say no. So if someone, yeah, because they want to make the fees, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. So, so if they have, if there are people who are just leaving the inventory there, there must be like this huge like lost and found thing at Amazon that like 
it has like so much inventory probably, I guess. So what they do to avoid that is once a year, they charge you actually twice a year. Uh, based on how long your inventory has been in there, they charge you what's called a long-term inventory fee. And if you've had inventory in there for over a year, they charge you obscene amounts of money to keep them stored there. So you are better off removing it and throwing it away than leaving it in there in hopes of it selling. So that way they keep all their, their warehouses at least fresh on a yearly basis. I see. And can you throw it away? Can you tell Amazon to throw it or do you just send it to you and then you throw it away? You know, I actually haven't even looked to see if I can have them throw it away for me. We always just want to make sure, we want to look at it ourselves. Because if we bring it back and it's not moving, we've, we've only had to do this with maybe a handful, you know, of probably somewhere around 50 units, you know, of the thousands and thousands that we're moving. And we just bring it back and we, we donate them, you know, we donate the items and that way we can actually do something nice with the with the obsolete inventory. <laughs> Sounds like there must be some Amazon employee who's looking forward to this. People that are just asking them to throw the inventory away and then they just go dumpster diving. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder. They probably got a system in place yeah, there. Awesome. All right. And so, you know, we've been on the horn for an hour. Let's just kind of wrap things up here. So one big nagging question that I've had is that, you know, if you can buy wholesale and sell at a retail, like what's keeping your suppliers from going, say, directly to Amazon and doing this? Too? Yeah. So in all honesty, then nothing's keeping them from doing it. And in fact, some of them do. And I don't even care because uh, if they're going to sell it at the same price as I will, you know, it doesn't hurt me to have, it obviously hurts my buy box percentage a little bit, but I'm not overly concerned about the vendors themselves, the manufacturers themselves actually selling it. A lot of the times though, they don't. And it's because it, it's a whole nother aspect of their business that they'd have to have somebody oversee and run. And so I think that's where they don't really worry about it. And they see us as, you know, hey, we're the retailers and we'll do the retail part if you stick to the manufacturing wholesale part. So I guess it still kind of sounds like a very old school business model, right? Like you have the manufacturer who just does that and then like a wholesaler and then a retailer and everyone kind of does their own thing and no one really tries to budge into like the end, like direct, go direct with the customer. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, some of them are, some of them do, but for me, I don't, I don't stress too much about it just because I'm only selling products that are moving reasonably well. So that way, if, a, if another competitor jumps on, you know, eventually, once you have maybe 90 or 100 people trying to sell the same product, then you've got problems, right? But if you've only got a handful, it's, I'm not too stressed about it because I'm picking products that are moving well and the pie is big enough for all of us to share. So it, it is kind of stressful because sometimes you can you can worry that, you know, you're not in the most strategic position, which I'm fully aware that that can be the case. <laughs> but the real value is actually just running a really efficient business with your processes and your managing inventory because people run out of inventory. And when they stock out, it takes them a long time to get it back into Amazon's warehouses. So if you can be efficient at managing all of your products and just do really well at basically being a distributor, right? You're making sure that the products are where they need to be, when they need to be there. That's when you really make make the money and, and compete. Yeah, and I guess for them, as long as they're selling more and more product, it doesn't really matter where they're selling it. Yeah, I mean, even if they sell it, if they sell it direct on Amazon, that's fine. They're not going to own the buy box either though, right? So they're just going to move a few more units and they'll just be another little store on Amazon. If they don't do that, they don't have to have anyone focus on it, and we all take care of that for them. I see. And I guess as long as they set like a minimum advertised price, you know, everyone's happy. And 
keeps everything handy dandy. I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Minimum advertised price is huge. I wish everyone did it. The only hard thing is when some dork decides to, to break it, but they usually end up disappearing. So gotcha. All right. And so you know, one thing you're talking about, like strategically, you're building your whole business on Amazon. Are you guys like using separate accounts to list different products or is it all through like, like one? Cause I, I guess like the nightmare scenario would be if one day you get dinged and then your account gets shut down. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be a huge nightmare. So that's, that's one thing we're actually trying to sort out right now. We're saying, okay, what can we do so that we're not so dependent on just Amazon and just one account because we do only have one account and we started, we're, we're experimenting with eBay, you know, eBay kind of went downhill there for a while, but I think, I think they may be picking back up. So we're, we're experimenting with another sales platform and, and looking to see how that goes. And then obviously just trying to see what else we, we can do to try and have a more defensible position because obviously, you know, when you live in Amazon's world, they can say one thing and then they can change it forever. And I suppose the same could be said for the rest of e-commerce with Google, right? But <laughs> you're a little, they're a little bit more open and free. So exactly, yeah. And Google, like, kind of when you have your own store, you can like have YouTube as a channel for traffic. You know, you have like Pinterest, all this stuff too. Whereas, kind of when you're on Amazon, you're just kind of within their ecosystem too. Right? Yeah, it's, it's a different ballgame, though. So. It is. It's a very different ballgame, and I think there are a lot of other ways, you know, to even drive traffic to our Amazon listings that we should be experimenting with, and. And that's kind of the next steps for our business. So Yeah, gotcha. All right, awesome. And last question, uh, you mentioned repricing a little bit. Are there any specific tools besides this uh, that you know someone getting into this should be aware of? Mainly, I mean, repricing is, is the big one. Everyone's got that. The other tool that I actually just had a guy build for me on Elance was a tool that can, you can basically upload a bunch of UPC codes into it and it will look on Amazon for you and tell you the sales rank, the price, basically all this detailed information, and it'll spit out all that information in a spreadsheet for you. So that, for the first six months of my business, I looked up every product individually, and I did that for thousands of items. And it, I mean, hours wasted, right? Once I got the software, I mean, it, it'll crank through, and I can let it run in the background, and it'll look up 400 products for me in a few hours. And... I have all the data I want. That was the biggest thing that I did, man. It was huge. There you go. You should sell this as a SaaS app to like diversify too. I should. I should sell it as a SaaS app. I need to figure out how to sell SaaS apps. Um, so maybe do that. Let's talk. You just contact other people selling on Amazon and then, hey, you know, I got this thing that can save you thousands and thousands of hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I have a feeling other other sellers have done somewhat something similar and made their own in-house one, but hey, we may as well share the wealth. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so repricing software, is there like a specific one you use or recommend? Or? I, so yeah, I use a, a software called ChannelMax and uh, it's not user-friendly. It's, <laughs> it's not easy to install, but it's extremely effective and it's very cheap. That's the one that I use. There are other softwares out there. Uh, I don't really know the names off the top of my head, but every other one that I looked up was either way too expensive or didn't quite have the functionality that I wanted. So channelmax.net, it's a great service for us once you kind of get the hang of it. And uh, it's only, I think it's, you know, what, 30 or 40 bucks a month, which for me, that's, that's worth every penny. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Ty. You know, we've been on the horn for over an hour. Uh, definitely exciting to change kind of the lineup a little bit, talk about Amazon. So uh, do you have a personal blog where people can find you or how should we get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. Just shoot me an email, actually. Uh, my email is T-R-O-N-E-Y 8 at gmail.com. So T-R-O-N-E 8 at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions or talk with anyone about it. Awesome. Yeah, it's interesting because most guests can give a plug about their website, but I guess when you're on Amazon, you know, you don't really have one and <laughs> it's kind of a little <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah, I don't have, I mean, all I have is our our uh, family website for traveling in Asia. So you can look at that one if you want, tyandsloan.com. <laughs> but that's that's not even any plug. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ty. And uh, thanks again for talking about Amazon. Uh, we'll keep up, keep in touch soon and uh, I'll let you know when the Brad episode comes up. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Terry. Good to talk to you. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.